Good evening, everyone. I see you're still here. <laughs> Can't be that bad. So, congratulations on two full days of practice. So, I want to start tonight with a, with a little poem. And it's called New York Subway. The beauty of people in the subway that evening, Saturday, holding the door for whoever was slower or left behind, even with all that Saturday night excitement, and the high school boys from Queens boasting, joking together proudly in their, expe- in their expectations and power young frolicsome bulls, and the three office girls, each strangely beautiful, the Indian with dark skin and the girl with her hair cut, very short and fringed, like Joan at the stake, the corners of her mouth laughing, and the black girls, delicate as a doe, dark brown in pale brown clothes, and the tall woman in a long caftan the other day, serene and serious, and the Puerto Rican holding the door for more than three minutes for the feeble, crippled, hunched little man who could not raise his head, whose hand I held to help him into the subway car. So we were joined in helping him And someone seeing us gives up his seat, learning from us what we had learned from each other. It's by a poet named uh, Hilda Morley. And it touches on the beautiful and the mysterious diversity of this earth that we've been gifted with. And it touches on the natural, compassionate response that we often see around us and feel within us. And so as you're learning that an important part of the foundation of this practice is a reinforcement of, a relearning of, this natural compassionate response, a response that's really inherent in all of us. So tonight I want to offer a perspective on practice that I I hope will be helpful and that I hope will allow you to uh, experience more ease in your life and in your practice. And also, in fact, I... I'm hoping that out of this talk tonight that you will um, experience a little more affection for yourself. So, a long, long time ago, Thursday morning, (laughs) you were given some instructions and today Matthew also gave instructions on how to meditate. And they were pretty simple, right? I mean, they were not difficult, complex instructions. Um, Basically, be present to what is happening in a kindly way. It's not a big deal. So the instructions are easy. But as you might have noticed, carrying them out, not so easy. There's various energies that arise when we sit and we're quiet. And they obscure or interfere, you might say, in our ability to just have a kindly awakened presence. In Pali, these energies are called nivarana. That's the Pali word for them, which literally translate as coverings. That which hinders your ability to see. So, I personally like to, re- to refer to these energies, these are energies of life, not just practice, as challenging energies. 
can also see them as supportive friends or even limbic lovers. And more on this later. So usually they're broken out into five categories, um, which are wanting or lust. Matthew went over these, uh, some of these last night. It's a broad category. It's the wanting mind. And then there's aversion, which is a category that, that has to do with anger, fear, guilt, shame, um, the, the not wanting mind, the, the part of our heart mind that wants to push away things. And then there's restlessness and worry. And there's sleepiness and dullness is the fourth major category, classically known as sloth and torpor. And the fifth is doubt. So this from the Buddha. This heart mind, O monks, is luminous, but it is covered by adventitious visitors. The uninstructed worldling does not understand this as it really is. Therefore, for her, there is no mental development. And this heart mind, O monks, is luminous, but it is free from adventitious visitors. The instructed noble disciple understands this as it really is. Therefore, for her, there is mental development. And so in that passage, mental development refers to the cultivation of the heart-mind, that, that word citta that encompasses both of them, heart-mind. Um, so mental development encompasses first the ability to gather the forces of this heart-mind together in samadhi, what's known as samadhi. Uh, It's a bright, powerful unification of mind when it's really cultivated and and, uh, developed. And then to utilize that collected, powerful nervous system, heart-mind, and aim it to see more clearly, to understand more deeply this creation that, we're, that we've been born into, to understand the nature of things, the nature of nature, to understand more deeply your life, your relationships. And at the same time, the growing power in this, this heart-mind has the capacity to cultivate a heart that is compassionate, loving, and capable of intimacy, greater and greater intimacy with everything in creation. So there's another part of this passage that points to something that's very, very important. The heart-mind is luminous. The heart-mind is luminous. The deep heart-mind, by its very nature, it's not dark, it's not murky, it's not dull, it's not turbulent. In its essential character, it's got a brightness, a luminosity. It's filled with a a shining, non-conceptual intelligence. It's non-conceptual intelligence. And there's also a deep tranquility in this luminous heart-mind. It has a knowing quality. And it's essentially unruffled by anything. It has the capacity to hold everything. Good, bad, the ugly, the whole enchilada. But as the Buddha said, this natural perfected heart-mind is visited by these various energies. And so I'll read you the poem by Rumi that you've all heard. And the reason you've all heard it many times is because it really hits the mark on the essential of this practice and life. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. 
even if they are a, are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So these natural energies, these natural challenging energies are part of everyone's experience if you're born. But why? Why do they come up? If we've got this unstained natural heart-mind, why did these energies come up and cover it over? And one important point that I want to make tonight, and it's a point that can change your whole relationship to life and practice, is that these challenging energies are at their base, the organism loving itself. They're loving visitors. They're primal survival energies. They emanate from the deep subconscious. They come from the primitive parts of the brain, the brain stem, the limbic system. They're very vigilant energies designed to ensure your survival. And those energies, the wanting, the not wanting, the restlessness, the worry, the doubt, the sleepiness, you know, their intent, although driven by survival, can be looked at energies of caring, attempting in their own way to provide you with some comfort, to have you avoid pain, protect you, connect you with others, and basically guarantee your survival. They're not very wise, but they want to guarantee your survival forever. And they're often misguided. They don't have broad wisdom. They're fueled by the primitive energies of fight, flight, and freeze. But I found that over the years, if we hold these energies with respect and appreciation as protectors and allies and even lovers, albeit sometimes misguided lovers, um, that's the way to go. Because if we hold these energies of greed, aversion, Restlessness, worry, doubt, sloth, torpor. Um, if we hold them as enemies, we're setting, up, we're setting ourselves up for an internal struggle, for fragmentation, and in the worst, in the worst possible cases, self-loathing. Every contemplative artist in deepening their practice works with and comes with skillful relationships with these energies. And at times, and maybe today you've had this experience, they might just flood in all at once. I can remember being on, on, on retreats, especially in, in the early days, and occasionally now, where um, I find myself I'm wanting something, some food that I don't have, or the sports section, or the internet, or wanting some person across the room, you know? And at the same time, there's this kind of, you know, this, this uh, uh, rising kind of crying out for vengeance because someone is sniffling or walking too heavily, you know? And so I'm also a little confused and I'm restless. And then the doubt is there. It's like, I can't do this. And what's going on, you know? So that's a multiple challenging energy attack. Anybody have any of that today where it's like all at once, it's like what's going on? It's okay. We can work with these energies. 
They're all workable because in the moment that you recognize, you actually recognize what's going on, in that moment, your whole relationship with that energy changes. There's a little bit, in recognition, there's a little bit of spaciousness that then happens in that moment where you're not then totally identified, totally lost, totally engulfed by that energy. So it's a qualitatively different relationship the moment that you're mindful of what's happening. And, and what's very interesting is that as you develop some continuity of mindfulness, and you really don't need a lot of continuity of mindfulness, just some, when the mind, the heart starts to gather the energies together, just a little bit, these challenging energies relax. That's why this is such a tool for living. Because these energies are our life. Wanting, not wanting, worrying, the whole deal. So there's five major components or five categories of what is called samadhi, this gathering together of these forces. And I thought I'd spend a little time and we'll get under the hood, take a look at these five elements that make up this samadhi, this practice that you're doing, bringing bringing your attention back and back again. And it's, it's kind of cool the way this works. Uh, so the first element is of samadhi is fr- first you've got to aim and connect your attention, your heart-mind, with whatever's happening, some object. And what that does, when you're, when you're able to aim and connect with your object, it counteracts sleepiness. And for example, sound, okay? Now listen, listen to this sound. In that moment, there's connection. There's not sleepiness. There's a, um, there's a wakefulness and a brightness when you connect with your object, whether it's the breath, sounds, body, whatever it is, listening to a bird outside, feeling yourself when you're walking. So in that moment of connection, sleepiness, it's just not there. And of course, there's different levels of sleepiness. Most of you have come here underslept because that's the way we roll in this culture. Nobody sleeps enough. Um, and then you've all got your personal biorhythms. Some of you are morning people, some of you are afternoon, some of you are evening people. Uh, But a more interesting type of sleepiness is what we call sinking mind. That's when there's pretty, in in one of the groups today, we kind of explored that. That's when there's there's pretty good mindfulness. I mean, you're aware of what's going on, but the energy just isn't up to speed. The alertness isn't quite there. It's like there's a brownout condition. You know, you're kind of mindful, but but the lights have dimmed. You know, and... Uh, and we talked about it, you know, from up here, sometimes uh, after lunch, you know, it, you look out and it's like the sea of bobbleheads where <laughs> everybody kind of jerking around, you know, and, and of course, if you were to look up here, you might see the same thing at times. <laughs> so we're not immune to this. And sometimes that kind of whiplash will kind of bri- brighten you up again. But sometimes not, you just kind of crawl back into the fog from whence you came, you know. So, but if you've been rested, sometimes chronic sleepiness in, in meditation is, is the re- result of a life that's a little out of balance. Or maybe you're having some internal resistance to some emotion that, that probably needs to be felt through a little more deeply. Some loneliness, sorrow, you know, whatever it might be. And another way to look at sloth and torpor is that uh, it, it's not being alive to what's happening right now. In meditation, it might manifest as sleepiness. Out in the world, it can be more like waiting for life to begin, kind of waiting for the next jolt of stimulus. 
our culture is shockingly stimulating. You know, when I, when I check out a Netflix movie, and I like to watch the trailers because there might be something that I'd be interested in. You know, usually you pick a movie and the trailers are somehow related to what you're watching, but not all the time. Um, <laughs> but, but really, 90% of the trailers I see are just violent explosions and people chasing each other around and helicopters, planes, trains, and automobiles. And it just goes from one explosion to the next. And I guess that's what people want because they make a, a lot of these movies. Most of them are like that. It's like just kind of get the adrenaline going and get the jolt. So that's our culture. And so you strange people who are interested in meditation, you come here and you come out of a culture that's just all the time. And it takes some time to get acclimated to the subtlety of experience. You know, it's not just jumping and exploding in your face. It's subtle. And so there's a tendency as we're learning, you know, because of the culture we're in, it's, it's easy to just doze off in between the next blast of stimuli. So, but we're learning to pay attention. Subtle is significant. All right, so that's, that's that first element of samadhi. It's called vitaka. It's, uh, it's connecting, connecting with our object. The second is called vichara, and that's sustaining the connection. So I'll ring the bell this time and I'll let it go and just hang with the sound. Now the sustaining capacity of the heart and mind counteracts doubt. Because when you're paying attention, when you have interest, when the awareness and interest is there, um, there's an intimacy that develops with the experience and there's really no time uh, for confusion and uncertainty to come into the heart and mind. You're just simply connected with your experience. But doubt's the most insidious of these energies. Um, because when it takes hold, it is so logical. And, it's, and skillful doubt is really part of discernment. It's an aspect of wisdom. I mean, um, you don't want to live your life where you believe everything that you hear. Doubt is important. I mean, that's just not going to work out so well if that's the way uh, you, you're, you are in life. But on the other hand, if you're continually running off with these streams and torrents of doubt, it just paralyzes the whole system. You never do anything. You know, when you're deluged with with doubt, you know, this practice doesn't make sense, these people aren't making sense, I can't do this, other people can. It's just the energy gets, the plug gets pulled and you just kind of, deflate, you know. Just like Tom Brady's footballs, they just deflate a little bit, or a lot, you know. Here's a story. Uh, A nun came to the abbess complaining that doubt was her primary challenge on the Buddhist path. She had doubt about the path itself, about the teachings, and about the teachers, and most importantly, about her own ability to succeed in the Buddhist practice. Your problem, said the abbess, is that you don't doubt enough. If you are going to the trouble of doubting, then continue your doubting, but do it more thoroughly. Do it more thoroughly. Please also doubt your doubt. (laughs) Doubt your doubt when those thoughts come up. You know, you don't have to believe every bit of flotsam that dribbles through your mind. (laughs) You just don't have to. It could be coming from the person next door to you. 
In fact, when you get stuck in a kind of funky, repetitive system where you're kind of beating yourself up the same repetitive, harmful thought, um, to, to get some breathing room, there's, there's three questions that might be helpful for you to ask. I found them helpful. And one is, um, is what I'm believing right now, you know, what is that belief? What is, what is churning these thoughts and emotions? What am I believing right now? What's the belief underneath this, these kind of debilitating thoughts, not good enough, unworthy, or whatever they might be, in these emotions? And the second is, am I absolutely true that that's, am I absolutely sure that that's true? Absolutely, without a doubt. Is there any scintilla of doubt in there that what I'm believing right now is, you know, is, is not true. I mean, is, you know, what is it? So what's the belief that's driving this? And is it absolutely true? And the third question is, what would it be like if I didn't believe this? How would it affect my energy system? How would it affect my, my mood if I didn't believe this? You know? So, the aiming and connecting of the heart-mind. Then we sustain that as best we can. Now, the third element of samadhi is called piti. This is when, this is when the good stuff starts to happen. And it doesn't take a lot of aiming and connecting and sustaining for you to get a taste of this. And some of you have already had a taste. And some of you have been on retreat before and have a practice that's long enough where you know what this is like. Now, piti, uh, the translation for that is joy and rapture. And it comes as a mind starts to gather its forces. Very pleasant sensations can, can, can be experienced. And what it does there, when you're experiencing piti, it's impossible to experience aversion. There's not hate, anger, guilt, shame, jealousy. None of that stuff is happening because there's joy and rapture in the mind. So that's the third category of samadhi. And the fourth, it's like, it's like you kind of you eat your vegetables first and, you, and, you, and you're working your mindfulness and you're connecting and you're sustaining that and you're kind of falling off and you're coming back and you're working it and you're being kind to yourself. And then you start to have these feelings. Hmm, this must be what draws people to this. And so you start, you're getting into the dessert portion. And then it gets even better. It's like there's some whipped cream that gets put on this, this nice fruit that you have. And that's called sukkah. It's, 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 um, sukkah is a contented sweetness. It's a little more refined than the, the joy and rapture of piti. And they, they often, there's kind of a discussion argument whether they actually come together or whether they're actually separate doesn't matter. They just, they're kind of rising up together. And when, and when sukkah is there, uh, your thinking settles down. There's a kind of a quiet, there's a contentment that starts happening. And there's no restlessness and worry. That disappears. You stop planning. You're just simply des- delighted in whatever the present experience is. You know? Feeling the breeze on your face or the uh, watching the trees move in the wind, or your breath, or the movement of your body, you know. And so you're settling more and more deeply. You see how this is getting refined. And, and as the heart-mind gets more settled, you then experience the full flowering of what's called ikagata, which is the unification of the heart and mind. And that has the capacity to transform desire. As the, as the heart-mind begins to get more one-pointed, you don't want or need anything. There's not a movement toward or away from anything. There's no sense of deficiency. Desire is kaput. So ikagata is synonymous with 
with equanimity. And you could say that you move from the sweetness of sukha to the coolness of the kagata, a deep peace. So at this point, you're, you're at one with your experience. You know, the, this kind of sense that you're a separate solid self is kind of dissolved out and you're just right there with your experience. And so all the challenging energies are relaxed temporarily. There's no covering over the luminous heart mind that's always there. So this little practice that you do really unlocks uh, some wonderful goodies, little by little. But, as we've noticed, these energies, they, they've got a lot of juice. They keep coming back. And when they're up, they're up. So I want to talk a little bit about, okay, what do we do? How do we, how do we work with them concretely and practically? There's an acronym that I'm sure some or many of you have heard that's helpful, helpful in us remembering how to work with these experiences. Basically, these experiences of life and here we are in our little laboratory, so right now in our practice. And the acronym is RAIN, R-A-I-N. And briefly, R is the recognition of what's going on. A is the accepting or the allowing of whatever it is, kind of not resisting it. Just We recognize what it is, we're allowing it to happen, does its thing like everything else in creation, we watch it, etc. The I is the investigation, and I'll get into these in some depth, but it's the investigation with kindness. I don't want to separate that out. It's the investigation with kindness, and it's a creation of an intimacy with the experience. It's more than just trying to think it out and analyze it. That's not really part of it. Now, the N is the fruit of the recognizing, the allowing, the intimate connection with your experience. And that's the non-identification. Another way to consider N is that you've you've returned back to resting in that natural, luminous heart-mind, that wakeful, loving awareness that we feel at times. It's there all the time. It just sometimes gets covered over. So what RAIN does, it's very interesting, that acronym, we follow that through, that that arc of practice, that it creates a more compassionate relationship um, uh, that we could call more like attending and befriending our experience. Attending and befriending. And it's a relationship that brings into play the most evolved part of our brain, the frontal cortex. So with a meditation practice, as you develop, and this is what all the scientists are finding out, but for those that have been practicing a long time, it's, we kind of know that, you know. Um, there's a gradual movement from primitive reactions, fight, flight, freeze, those reactions, and sometimes whole lives are consumed with that, to more and more being able to deal with situations on an attend and befriend basis, recognizing, opening to, experiencing, attend and befriend. So first we recognize what's going on with the R. That's the R. It's the initial receiving. It's another way you can use the R. It's it's, it's the receptive quality of your experience, an openness to it. And it's a recognition without prejudice. Prejudice. Everything's invited. And tell a little story. Um, uh, this is about the myth of Mara. For those of you who don't know Mara, well, first of all, in Buddhist mythology, there's a lot of supernatural creatures that make their make their appearance. But the, maybe the most ubiquitous one of all is Mara. Appears again and again in different stories throughout Buddhist mythology. Not sure what gender Mara is, appears in different forms. But Mara represents greed, hatred, delusion, fear, anxiety, laziness, all our neuroses, all our insecurities. 
everything that can make life difficult, this is what Mara represents. Now, literally, the word Mara means destruction. Mara is also known as the, the Lord of death. You know, But it's basically anything in life, internally or externally, that's challenging. Mara. Now, Mara is usually best, best known in, in Buddhist mythology for on the night of the Buddha's awakening, Mara comes to challenge Buddha, you know, the right to sit there and, and to wake himself up. And first, she, she he, it, whatever, Mara tries to frighten the Buddha, then tries to seduce the Buddha, and then tries to challenge the Buddha's self-worth. None of that works. But what's interesting is even after awakening, Mara continues to appear as the Buddha goes on with his teaching. So this part of the, the, the story and you have to grant me a little artistic license, you're not going to find this in the Pali Canon exactly as I'll tell it. But uh, So the Buddha's meditating in his cave, and out front is uh, Ananda, his attendant and really dear close friend. Now at this point, the Buddha ha- is enlightened. It's shortly after his enlightenment, or not, not long after. Ananda is not enlightened yet. He's a very diligent practitioner and he's supporting the Buddha in every way in his teachings and helping build this community and good organizational development guy. And, you know, he, you know so he's, he's very important. So he's, he's doing walking meditation out in front of the cave. The Buddha's back in the cave. And Ananda looks and, oh my gosh, it's Mara walking up the path. You know? So imagining, you know, Ananda did not you know, he's not enlightened yet. So he kind of girds himself a little bit for this encounter. He's walking out there and and he's probably feeling a little protective of the Buddha. So Amara arrives at the cave entrance and uh, with a little, I imagine, a little curtness in Ananda's voice, he says, hello, Mara. And why are you here? You know? And Mara says, hey, you know, I was just in the neighborhood. I thought I'd stop in and have a chat with the Buddha. <laughs> you know, is he available? And Ananda says, well, or I imagine him saying, well, I, you must be kidding me. <laughs> so soon after there was the big thing about the awakening and all of that, and you're kind of seen as the enemy, you know, at least in my mind, and uh, you were kind of defeated that night. Wouldn't you agree? And... Mara's just smiling, you know. And so Mara laughs out loud. Oh, enemy? I'm an enemy? You mean the Buddha has enemies? You know, so Mara's even more interested. He kind of laughs and he says, well, you know, just please ask him. So Ananda's pretty sure that the Buddha is going to say, well, no, I don't have time to see Mara. I've, I've got an appointment or I've got a Skype call I have to attend to or something. But no. The Buddha said, oh, how nice. Please invite invite him in. I've got time. And so Mara, you know, and so so Ananda goes and invites Mara in. And meanwhile, the Buddha gets his nicest, you know, he doesn't have many things. But he has a little chair and he gets put some cushions on it and he goes to where the fire is and he's working up some tea. You know, he's he's a gracious host. And so Ananda you know, invites him in, kind of aghast at this, what's happening. And the Buddha hugs Mara. Welcome. How are you, my friend? How have you been? Is everything okay with you? What can I do for you? And he takes him by the arm, takes him over, puts him down, brings him some tea. So, the Buddha recognizes and accepts and allows the visitor. He accepts his presence with a, with a kindly equanimity. So that's the recognition and acceptance, the R and the A of rain. But because we're human, uh, sometimes it's not so easy to accept what's happening. I mean, it's just, that's the way it is. We're, we're wired to move away from unpleasantness. 
You remember 10th grade biology? They gave us some pond water and we'd put it under a microscope and there'd be all these creatures. And there's always some wise guy who would take the Bunsen burner, turn it on, put it under a corner, and you'd watch all these poor little creatures run from the heat, you know? Well, we're not too different than these little creatures. Um, And so sometimes we can't fully be with our experience. We repress it or we resist it or we push it away. We deny the experience or we try to make a bargain. You know the meditator's bargain, right? Where something's really difficult and you've had all these teachings and you know, well, the the deal is to turn toward and open to my experience fully. But really what's going on in your mind is, yeah, I'm going to turn towards this for a while and and I'm going to do all this and then it's going to go away and that's what I really want because I don't want anything unpleasant. That's the meditator's bargain. And we can't help it, you know? That's okay too. I mean, and we can recognize that, oh, you know, today I've got a fair amount of resistance. I'm not, not quite up to fully facing that. Isn't that interesting? It's my, it's my humanity. I'm not a superhero. You know, there's some resistance there. And then we can include that in our kindly acceptance. The frail human that has some resistance doesn't want to work with this difficulty. But just the intention, just the intention, we're not going to be perfect at this, but just the intention of wanting to be with what is, is really preparing the seedbed for healing. You know, and it may take some time and there'll be fits and starts, but that intention will carry us. You know, I think of my garden. This spring, I've had a busy spring. This is my third residential retreat with some space in between and I'm working on these other projects. And, but I'm out there in the garden getting it going the best I can and it's imperfect and, you know, kind of rototilling it up and get everything planted and mulched and working with the irrigation, getting the right plants in and trying to figure out how I'm going to work with the squash bores this year and all these things. And, and it's imperfect. But the intention is some things are going to grow, some things are going to happen, you know, and there's a lot of joy in that. So back to Mara in the cave and the Buddha. But the Buddha wasn't finished, you know, just by inviting him in, recognizing and accepting what's happening. He was interested in going deeper. Those questions, how are you doing? What can I do for you? That was like a, uh, an invitation to intimacy. So this next level of interaction begins, this investigation with kindness. And oftentimes people get this mixed up. They think, well, investigation, oh, that must be just figuring it out. But that's not it. It's always embodied. It's not, although we may spontaneously get, and we do, we get insights and understandings as we're opening to investigating with kindness. Oh, now I understand this. Now I understand that. That's why this relationship works or doesn't work. You know, we start getting things. They start falling into place. Um, But it's important not to see the I and RAIN as an intellectual undertaking. Everything gets felt through the body. You know, all the emotions are felt through the body. You know, it's interesting to explore that how how a thought and an emotion generates a feeling in the body, sensations in the body. And it can go the other way. You can have some strong sensations in the body, you know, and they can generate all these thoughts and um, and emotions. So it's a two-way street. It's very interesting to look at it. There's a subtle change, a shift in focus that can help you to remember to embody your experience. You know, we, just, we have to remember it or we're, we're not going to embody it. So, and, and it's the cultivation of remembering to withdraw your energy from the object that, that your energy has jumped onto. A couple of weeks ago, teaching down in Virginia, 
and we rented a facility. We don't have a facility. No one has a facility like this, let's face it. So we rent, rented a facility, 50 or 60 of us. I'm in charge of it all. It's, it's, in this one, it's our first week-long residential in this facility. The first morning, everybody's, you know, they've gotten there. People are tired. I know everybody's a little ragged. The cooks didn't show up. One guy comes running in at the time where 60 people are, are ready to eat. And he's scrambling around looking for cereal boxes. And I'm like, I'm in charge of this. What has, you know, and I'm feeling this anger coming up to this poor guy. I mean, it wasn't his fault. Some schedule, there was some scheduling. But I'm feeling this, this anger coming up. And then there's this kind of embarrassment and a little, a little bit of fear. And I'm angry at the institution, you know, this place we're renting. I'm angry at this person. I'm not expressing it. And then I'm remembering, oh, all right. Let me withdraw that energy and feel what it's like, what's going on inside. 60 people looking at me. What's next, Pat? You know? And so I'm feeling, you know, there's anger. Underneath it is some fear. I'm reflecting on the fact that, you know, I, I, I want to be accepted in the tribe and valued in some way. And here it's like, and I know it's not logical, but there's something in there that's like, gee, I'm going to be kicked out of the tribe. This is a terrible thing, you know? And that's not logical, but that's the kind of, that's from the brain stem. That's not from this part of the brain. That's deep in there. So work with it, feel those feelings. Yeah, we get together, we get enough stuff, people get enough food to eat. It's okay. So that's, you know, I, I could have stayed on the guilty parties, but it gets real interesting when you bring it inside when you withdraw that energy. So let's do a little, let's do a little reflection now for fun. And so close your eyes. And take a few exaggerated breaths. And now, I want you to conjure up something you really want. Hey, there's no limit on this could be that new car, the fancy technology, you know, that new job, that relationship. Heck, maybe you're having a Vipassana romance. We call them VRs. There might be somebody in this room who you've already had a fantasy about, like, oh, we're going to get together and then we're going to have this relationship and it's, it's all going to happen like this and then we're going to get divorced or whatever, however it ends. <laughs> So, here, let's get into wanting. Find something that you want. And take the time to create a, the whole scene. Like, see this object of your wanting. Smell it. Notice the scene that you're in. You know, give yourself some, you know, go for it. You know. If it's, if it's that new technology, the iPhone 15 or whatever number it is, you know, you, when you open that packaging and there's all this new stuff and it's, all, it's not nicked up and, you know, or the new computer or the new fancy Google Watch or iWatch or whatever it is, you know, the new car, whatever. Just really, just, just want it. Just, get, you know, really see it in detail. More details. Imagine touching it. If it's food, tasting it. Whatever. And now just withdraw your attention back inside yourself. Just bring it back. And you may be able to get a 
just a little taste of kind of undiluted wanting. You know? And you can watch that as it's inside you. You can watch it do its thing like everything else. It'll intensify. It'll eventually relax out if we're not grasping and putting gasoline on it. So that's the that's the withdrawing the energy, withdrawing ourselves and feeling directly what's going on. So you can open your eyes or, or keep your eyes closed if you like. So the investigation, I want to stress it, is investigating with kindness. And it brings a very subtle but important aspect into play. So we're exploring what's going on. And it can be helpful to recognize the the supportive intent of that energy that you're experiencing, that challenging energy. Appreciating that energy, although at times it can be misguided or overcooked. For example, say you're noticing fear. Okay? Oh, fear's here now. That's a simple knowing what's happening. And that fear can be received with a softer perspective that the fear is trying to protect you in some way. Trying to protect you from danger, keep you safe. And at times that's very useful. And other times it's overcooked. You're just anxious a lot. It's a survival remnant. It's the organism taking care of itself. Loving itself. And with that, with a softer perspective like that, there actually can, if we practice this over time, there can be the arising of some empathy and compassion for yourself. You're a fragile human. Of course you have fear. And it's the same kind of feeling when a friend is scared or a child is scared. Well, you you know, you reach out. You, You know, you have that feeling. Oh, poor dear. We can learn to do that and feel that for ourselves. And if it's wanting that you feel, like you just did, wanting something or somebody, the softer softer perspective about wanting is that, okay, this organism is trying to get something to make my life more comfortable. That might be needed in some way. That's wanting. Or if it's a person Underneath the lust or whatever, the agitation, there's really, there's a wanting for connection. That's human. That's who we are. It's not bad or weird. It's just who we are. So recognizing that with a softer perspective. The organism is trying to connect with the tribe or get things to make us comfortable. And if it's restlessness and worry... Or excessive planning. How many people plan a lot? You know? I mean, that's such a survival deal. You know? Can't beat ourselves up for that. The soft perspective is, again, we're thinking and planning and and trying to get things together so that we can continue to exist. I mean, our organism is intent on us living forever. I mean, that, of course, doesn't make any sense, but that's what it's doing. You know, I remember I spent a lot of years working with hospice and I can remember an 88-year-old woman, you know, and I'm sitting there with her and she's, she's dying and she looks at me and she says, but why me? Why me? And, it's, and I'm thinking, I didn't say it, but I'm thinking, but lady, you're 88. This is what happens, you know? I didn't think that. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. But what I was thinking was something else. So this organism does want to keep going. And so even if sleepiness, sloth and torpor has kind of fogged you in, you're in the kind of ooze, feeling like you're under a, in a vat of molasses, you know, a soft perspective might be, ah, this organism is really trying to protect me from feeling something that might be difficult or painful. That's not wise in the long run. We know that. We have to turn toward and face 
what's kind of getting in our getting in the way of our system expressing itself in our in our liberation and if and if doubt has arisen in the limbic love context the softer perspective it's our organism doesn't want to be fooled you know it just doesn't want to it 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 in that moment is feeling i don't want you to be fooled and get hurt i'm just going to freeze you up Better frozen than sorry. That's doubt. So, it was a huge step in my practice when I realized that these energies that come up, they're not something that gets in the way of practice or life. That's the deal. That's part of our practice. It's part of our life. You know? And by cultivating over time a soft, tender perspective to these energies, you really develop more compassion for yourself. And automatically, you're extending more compassion in the world. You think about it, you know, working with these energies in this way, when you're working with a loved one or a friend or a coworker. All of those relationships work better when there's, a, when there's warmth, empathy, and trust. And that's what you're cultivating in yourself. You know. There's that uh, line from an anonymous samurai poem in the 14th century that, that, that says, I make my mind my friend. I make my mind my friend. It's really a lot of what we're doing here. Befriending, first attending and then befriending. A few weeks ago, I was reading an article, and maybe some of you have read about it, that our relationship with Cuba is uh, softening. You know, it's where now there's going to be ferries going to Cuba and things are going to normalize after 60 years or whatever it is, 50 years. And so... Uh, Fidel Castro has had a long, a lifetime, or almost a lifetime now, relationship with uh, Senator Pat Leahy from Vermont. A lot of people didn't know that. And after um, uh, the revolution in Cuba, one of the things that Castro instituted, he, well, first of all, he grew up on a dairy farm. He loves all things dairy. And he thought, well, the, everybody needs to have access to ice cream. So he set up these state ice cream parlors where for two, three, four cents you'd go have a banana split or whatever and people would line up when they would open and people play music and hang out together. It was a big event in areas where they were. So when Leahy was visiting years ago, Castro took him to one of these ice, ice cream parlors. And of course Leahy said, hey, I'm from Vermont. You haven't tasted ice cream until you taste Ben & Jerry's. So he sent Castro a case of Ben & Jerry's ice cream. You know? And so this is an excerpt from the article. Um, uh, in the early 1900s, Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy, a stalwart opponent of the embargo, visited one of these parlors with Fidel Castro during his trip to the island. Leahy swore that his home state's product was better and sent Castro a case of Ben and Jerry's to make his point. Castro was pleased. The ice cream swap helped pave the way for lengthy phone calls the sharing of family pictures, and other personal gestures. In a recent interview, Leahy's former foreign policy aide insisted that 20 years of back-channel exchanges like this achieved a normalization of relations, relations that so much hardline bluster could not. So maybe you invite these challenging energies in for a cup of tea and some Cherry Garcia ice cream. <laughs> you know? Investigating with kindness. So that brings us to the last part, the end of rain. When you've had the tea and ice cream. And there's been established some warm appreciation, a little bit of friendliness, genuine interest, in the experience, some openness. Now the stage is set for some magic. It's organic magic. It happens by itself. This is where the shift can happen. 
As Matthew said last night, shift happens. This is one way to look at it. This is where, where release happens, some freedom happens, some liberation, some greater happiness can be available. As this more full, kindly presence grows in you over time, as you cultivate this practice, these qualities, there opens a spaciousness. And there's a kind of oceanic sense of a connection with all of creation. And maybe some of you have already had that experience and you just wow by something in nature or some experience that's happened. It's a shift from the small, solid, defended, separate self to this unbounded, expansive presence. It's where we can appreciate these waves of challenge, these waves in the ocean, but we know and understand our connection to this ocean. This vast, connected, interdependent creation that we're part of. So this RAIN, R-A-I-N, is a kind of cute acronym for your practice and how to approach life. It's especially helpful for any pattern of reactivity that you might have that causes harm to yourself or others. Certain habits or addictions, etc. And at times when you notice the thoughts are repeating themselves, there's usually some emotional charge behind that. It's a time to slow it all down. Just slow it all down. Slow and easy. And in a sense, let the gentle rain fall on your experience. So tonight we explored the major categories of energies that you face in this life. The greed, the lust, the doubt, the sleepiness, the restlessness, all of that. And we explored how this basic mindfulness practice is a very simple practice of kind of gathering the heart-mind together little by little. Relaxes all these energies. We explored the acronym of RAIN. Recognize, accept, investigate with kindness and then the non-identification, the opening Basically, the returning to that natural awareness. And we explored a little bit the cultivation of the appreciative attitude toward the kind of organic loving nature that's there. Our organism sometimes misguided with these energies, but the intent of it is very sweet. So attending and befriending is the way. Seeing the deeper intent of these difficult energies can enhance our befriending. You know, we, there's more empathy and compassion for us as frail humans. We're sharing that tea and ice cream. This practice you're engaging in is in addition to other things, very much about love and kindness. Compassion for yourselves, and by extension, everything in this beautiful creation. This heart-mind, O monks, is luminous. And your practice is finding your way home again to that luminous heart-mind. So let's sit together for a moment. This from Ryokan. Like the little stream making its way through the mossy crevices, 
I too quietly turn clear and transparent. Like the little stream making its way through the mossy crevices, I too quietly turn clear and transparent. Thank you for your kind attention. And we have about 25 minutes for walking and enjoying this creation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.